Moncrief on News Talk. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Time once again uh, to chat with Jonathan de Burke, a butler, to tell us about some stories from other parts of the world. Jonathan, good afternoon to you. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, not too bad. Now, uh, let's go to uh, Poland first. And uh, authors are told to apologise for a Nazi slur. Yeah, it's uh, it's a long story, this one. Uh, and it involves, I, I suppose we'll start back in the 1940s, probably be a good place to begin. So the case involves a man by the name of Edward Malinowski. All right. Now, Edward Malinowski is now dead. He's been dead for a good few years. But he was the village elder um, in, a, in, in a village, obviously, in, in Poland that was occupied by the Nazis during the war. And when the war ended, there was actually a case brought against him in Poland. And this was four or five years after. So it was in 1950. Right. And he was acquitted of the accusations that were made against him. And those accusations were that he was complicit in the killing by German Nazis of 18 Jews, uh, the locals, obviously, who were hiding out in a forest near the village of Malinowa, uh, with this small village in Poland that I referenced already. Now, as I said, he was acquitted. And what's interesting about this particular case is that the, the person who was in an integral part of his acquittal was a Jewish woman who he had allegedly stolen from, but who he then subsequently gave work to and as a result saved her life right she was the one who got up in the dock in 1950 and said this guy is a good guy and he wasn't involved in the killing of these 18 jews however years later in 1996 when two researchers were doing some work for a book they went to this woman who i think at this time was now living in israel and she recanted what she'd said originally in 1950 right Mm. said that he was in fact not a great man at all and that he was responsible for these deaths and various other things that he had done to her. They included that in a paragraph, okay, uh, of a history book that they were involved in the research of. Now, this history book is 1,600 pages long, right? It focused on the the, the fate of Jews in, in various different counties in Poland. Very specific thing. And years later, uh, after the book was published, the niece of this man heard his name being slurred from her point of view. So she brought a case against the researchers of this book, right? And that is where we arrived at all of these years later, just last week, where a judge has basically told these two researchers, one based in Canada and one, I believe, based in um, Poland itself, that they're going to have to write a written apology uh, to this 81-year-old niece uh, of this man who was the village elder. So it's quite a complex case Uh, as you can imagine. Now, initially, her lawyers were actually looking for a payment of about 27,000, the equivalent of about 27,000 euro. Uh, But the judge said that there'd be no um, payment required, but that a written apology needs to be made uh, for slander, I suppose. Uh, Uh, That's uh, interesting legally, as in, you know, you can't defame the dead. Uh, In Poland, perhaps you can. Yes, but the, what's interesting about this, and that's a great point that you make, uh, one of the first things that you learn in, in, in journalism school, uh, is that it wasn't him that she was concerned about. It was her name mm. that she was concerned about. So in that case, I suppose she was saying she was they were slandering the living, really. The, the other thing about it is that it, it's the first case to be brought under 
um, legislation. Do you remember? Because we covered it. Yeah. It was real controversial legislation that was brought in around 2018, which basically said that if you um, kind of, for want of a better way of putting it, mention the Holocaust and Poland in, a, in the same phrase, right, we're going to bring charges against you. Now, originally yeah. they wanted to bring criminal charges that could have landed you in jail for three years, but then they toned it down after much criticism. And so it's uh, their civil charges. And so this is the first one that's been, first case that's been brought under that legislation. And the woman in Israel, who had originally yeah. said that he'd saved her life and then recounted yeah. this, yeah. Uh, why did the court decide that on the second occasion she spoke, she, she, she was lying? Well, that's it. I mean, the decision was made by the judge and basically said that the evidence that she gave in 1950 and the evidence that she gave 46 years later didn't stack up. And so for that reason, the court has basically decided that you can't go change go changing your mind, you know, saying in 1950 that he's a great fellow and saved my life. And then 46 years later, all of a sudden change your life mm-hmm. or change your mind. Now, the, the authors of the book uh, basically said that, you know, she was to a certain degree indebted to him on a very practical level for saving her life because she did you know, employ her and get her involved in forced labor, which which did do that. Uh, but she she and she said that in 1950, she she testified in his favor because she wanted to acknowledge that fact. But then 46 years later, she went into a bit of a deeper dive of the facts. And, and this was what was published in the book. So it flipped the the view of this man who had been seen as something of a hero before. And uh, the niece didn't like that. Right. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating from a legal point of view, yeah. but it's also from a human point of view, because I suppose he could have been, he could have been both things at the same time. Yeah, you know? most uh, certainly. That's, that's the complexity of it. And, and really more than anything, it, it feeds into this whole dialogue that's going on in Poland at the moment, uh, because they've been struggling with this concept of, you know, their involvement during the Holocaust uh, and uh, so it's it's interesting. Now it can be sorry. Just to finish on this, Sean, it can be appealed, and it probably will be, I imagine, by both sides. And um, so it's unlikely there'll be an end oh. to it anytime soon. Right, Mauritius. We're going to next, where a uh, trade minister there has stepped down. What happened? Yeah, it's, uh, today's all of today's stories are extremely complex. I have to be honest with you, Sean. Um, <laughs> this this involves a man who was the Minister of Commerce and Consumer Protection in Mauritius. Yojida Somainadin is his name, um, early 40s. Uh, he's been in politics for a while. And he's a member of the ruling party, a, a, a party called the Militant Socialist Movement. Now, what's interesting about this is that a, a colleague of his, uh, a man, I'll give you his, his nickname, a man known as Kaya, was found last year uh, dead in uh, a sugarcane field, right? And you know, there's been foul play suspected around this particular thing uh, since then, okay? Back in December, the wife of this allegedly murdered, or what appears to be a murdered uh, former MP, brought a case against this minister uh, and basically said that he had made a false statement to the revenue authority in Mauritius, claiming that the minister had falsely stated that the murder victim's wife was employed as a constituency clerk, and that she was earning a monthly salary of about 170 euros, okay? Mm. So it, it doesn't appear to be much, right? 
and certainly in the numbers, 170 euros don't appear to be much. But somewhere along the line, somebody was trying to get somebody else into trouble. And when that was reported, somebody died. All right. And it looks like this guy has now been summoned to the Central Criminal Investigation Department for questioning under warning. And it's become a big deal in Mauritius. So since I looked at this story, there's been another resignation and people have now gone out into the streets looking for the whole of the government to resign, um, basically because of their handling of COVID, uh, the fact that the um, you know the tourist industry is, is, is has been decimated. Obviously, you could argue that that's no fault of the government as such. Uh, but there's been high levels of corruptions and very corruption and various different things like that uh, over over the last few years. So this particular case and you know the sort of um, implications around it uh, is not very good for the for the current government. Yeah, it's a it's a very murky one indeed. Right, uh, uh, Fiji. We're going to go to uh, now, yeah. A lot of stories about people getting in trouble today as well. Yeah. Uh, this is, <laughs> the vice chancellor of the University of South Pacific is alleged to have done what? Yeah, so this is a, a man by the name of Professor Pal Aluwalia. Uh, he was appointed professor of the. Uh, University of the South Pacific about two years ago, right? And he went in there with the intention of cleaning the place up, right? And he he, he went in and he did a few investigations and he wrote a report which was subsequently leaked, right? And that detailed allegations of financial mismanagement, abusive entitlements, unearned promotions, millions of dollars that were improperly spent by former administrations. And an awful lot of those people that were uh, alleged to be involved in in corruption, I suppose, were very closely tied to the uh, president, the president for life of Fiji, Frank Frank Baini Marama, who we've mentioned a few times before. He's Mm. been there since 2007. Uh, He's uh, not a nice individual, all right, to put it bluntly, former military um, uh, man and a a tough individual. So people close to him, didn't like the allegations that this guy was making, right? He was a kind of a blow-in a Canadian and Australian passport holder, came in and was determined to shake the whole place up. So cut a long story short, um, he was put under investigation by the um, university's executive committee uh, over alleged malpractice, right? Charges that nobody ever knew anything about, nobody ever heard anything about, and subsequently the charges were dropped and he was reinstated. He was then arrested and he was held on campus for a few days. And in the middle of the, light, the night, just about 10 days ago, uh, he was picked up and he was deported from Fiji. Uh, he's, he's currently in Brisbane, I believe, self-isolating. And uh, the world media are getting in contact with him there and asking him what's, you know, what's going on and what his plans are for the future. Um, but it looks like he had an awful lot of information that a lot of powerful people in Fiji uh, did not want him publishing. Uh, and the the authorities in Fiji didn't give any official reason why he was deported. It was a very vague statement, right? They basically said that he was conducting himself in a manner that was prejudicial to the peace, defence, public safety, public order, public morality, public health and security or of the good government of the Fiji Islands. So one of these vague statements. But specific charges, nothing has been said. Uh, they, they also said that he broke some terms of his visa and, 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 and that kind of thing. Um, but it's it's uh, it's complete rubbish, to be honest with you. Right. Okay. If, I, if I can lose my uh, my my objectivity for a moment, 
and and there have been as you know, have there been protests and 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 people demonstrating about this. Oh yeah, well, when he was uh, initially uh, struck off or whatever you want to call it, and and uh, he was suspended, um, students went out, uh, pro- protested. Uh, lots of his colleagues went out and protested, and they and they didn't like, and and they got him reinstated essentially. Um, but then the government decided to deal with it in this particular manner. Now, it's interesting because it's going to have an effect on the whole region, right? Because that particular university is actually spread out across 12 different islands uh, and different countries. So different different um, departments on those different islands. So Samoa has already weighed in and basically said, listen, if you want to switch the headquarters, we'll, we'll happily take up that mantle so it's an interesting it's an interesting story from um a regional point of view as well so um i wonder will he end up going to samoa and and uh you know there being two um headquarters as such ah that'd be an (laughs) an interesting turn of events right uh saudi arabia we're going to now now this is a story uh uh, people may have seen during the week this is uh, a a fairly prominent woman's rights activist has been released yeah, Lujan Al-Hatlul, uh, she's a 31-year-old activist. Um, she would have been 28 when she were there, thereabouts when she went into jail just over a thousand days ago. Um, and you'll remember her because uh, she's, uh, well, she's a quite an astounding lady, really, to be honest with you, as are most of the activists uh, who are who have been busy in, in Saudi Arabia. She, she was very prominent because she was the one who was taking um, recordings of herself driving. Uh, yeah. before it became legal to do so for women back in 2018 i think they changed the law and uh or sorry 2017 it was sorry um and she just shortly after that law was changed was arrested along with a number of other activists and she's been in prison ever since uh, until the other day um it's interesting to note that and I hadn't thought of this before because I, I, I wondered at the time, why did they throw them in jail after they had changed the law? And it was interesting sort of political thing because it appears that the Saudi authorities didn't want it to look like that they had been successful in campaigning for change. Yes. They wanted to make it look as if it had come from Mohammed bin Salman mm. you know, and the authorities themselves. Um, so that's why they were silenced, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. But it's it's a good news story. I suppose there's not too much more to say on it other yeah. than she is out. Now, how free she is is another matter altogether. Yeah, and, um, and now she has alleged that she was an awful mistreatment when she was in yes. uh, um, uh, prison. Now, obviously, they deny all that. And I think, I, like, Joe Biden kind of almost took credit for it, uh, um, and maybe undeservedly, it should be said. But it, are there any indications as to why they've let her out now? Um, the... the I suppose it could be a nod to the new administration um, uh, and, you know, the Democrats are in the US and, and she be kind of became a bit of a cause for them, uh, to be honest. As you say, Biden did mention her during the presidential election and it is accepted, I think, on both sides that the United States are going to take a look at how they engage with Saudi Arabia uh, into the future. So it could be a nod by... Um, bin Salman to to Joe Biden to say, look, we're prepared to meet you halfway on certain things. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Turkey, uh, we're going to go to, or, you know, the sort of t- Turkey stroke Iraq, I should say. Uh, and I suppose uh, the, the Kurds are a group of people we've forgotten about, but they were kind mm. of, uh, they were dropped in it, to put it mildly. And uh, it seems like Turkey are now attacking PKK positions. 
They are, uh, and it's it's a very complex story. Again, uh, this happened. The, the, the crux of this story, the main part of it, happened in northern Iraq, right? So the Turkish authorities announced last week that they were launching an, uh, a kind of an attack, I suppose, on on PKK um, outposts in the northern Iraqi mountains, right? So this is where uh, they would, you know retreat back to and they have lots of caves and they kind of galvanize and regroup there and uh, the Turkish authorities say that they killed that Kurdish fighters PKK fighters killed 13 Turkish civilians okay uh, they say that they came across they, they say that during an operation they came across the bodies of 13 Turkish civilians in a cave in northern Iraq okay um, mm. after the completion of this particular operation, which from a Turkish military point of view was quite successful, right? They killed nearly 50 Turkish uh, Kurdish fighters um, and they captured two others, all right? The, the claims are, of course, they have to be always taken with a pinch of salt, right? I, and I don't think I'm being unfair when I say that about Erdogan and Tur the Turkish military, right? From their side, the PKK are saying that they weren't civilians, um, that they were prisoners, uh, military uh, personnel, um, and they also say that they never harmed them at all, and that in fact they died as a result of a shelling that was initiated by the Turkish military. So both sides have their own story, and it's very hard to know who to believe, I suppose. Yeah. And um, if you if you take it from Human Rights Watch point of view, they're slightly dubious about the constant claims of civilian deaths from the Turkish uh, side. And anytime there's something going on with Turkey from a foreign affairs point of view, you've all, always got to look at what's happening domestically. And at the moment, Erdogan is having trouble with university riots and, uh, and protests that are going on in Istanbul and various other regions of the country at the same time. So again, another complex situation and not as black and white as perhaps the uh, press briefing given by the Turkish military would like you to believe. Yeah, uh, though, I mean, obviously the the, the uh, Turkish hostility towards even the faint possibility of a Kurdish homeland has been well known for a long time. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, that's all we have time for. Thanks a million uh, once sure, again. Sure. Uh, Jonathan de Barkabal, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break. Back in a couple of minutes. Moncrief on News Talk.